Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And before we start this week's episode, we've got a couple of shouts out. First of all, thank you to Abby. There's an E. Maybe it's Abby. For joining our Patreon at the Dirt After Dark level. We hope you enjoy the extra monthly content and the backlog of the spicy Dirt After Dark episodes. Secondly... I want to share a lovely message from another patron, Desiree, because it made us feel nice. (laughs) Desiree wrote, I've thanked you both before for the great work, but again, thank you. I've been under the weather. Of course, it's the plague. And your podcast has been great at keeping my spirits up. Though I really should stop eating or drinking while listening because there is without fail a moment in each episode where one of you says a snarky thing and I choke. Thank you, winky face. So Desiree, thank you you. for those kind words. We hope you're on the mend. And, and we're sorry about the choking. Well, and the general sorry. illness. We're very sorry about that. We had less to do with that. Yeah. And and hence, that's why we hope yeah, you're on the I got there. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get started with this week's topic, which let's. takes us across the globe from where we are, at least. And to a site that, frankly, I'm amazed we haven't talked about much in the two years we've been making this show. Um, we've been wanting to spend more time talking about this part of the world. So this is us sticking our toes into those waters by talking about one of the most recognizable archaeological assemblages in the world, the mausoleum of Emperor Chen Shi Huang and the accompanying army of terracotta soldiers. So Chen Shi Huang, who was he? What was his deal? And can we parlay this into a far too brief overview of the early imperial history of China? Yeah. Yeah, we can. Yep. Yes, we can. (laughs) Uh, The earliest supposed dynasty that ruled China was the Xia. Yep. Who may or may not have existed. Oh, Oh. (laughs) this is another one of those instances (laughs) like the Sumerian king list, the antediluvian kings or the Icelandic sagas of early kings. There's no contemporary written history of the Xia. But the timeline associated with them is around 2100 to 1600 BCE. And also in the tale of, I think, the first Shah Emperor, uh, a dragon plays a really big part. So, you know, it's it's one of those. It's dragony. It's dragony. Okay. Yeah. going to have some, some mud fossils in here. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to leave like you icing me out like, in the episode? <laughs> no, I just was trying to remember when we talked about mud fossils. I don't know fossils. that we've ever talked about mud fossils on the show, but okay. um, uh Sarah over on Archaeological Fantasies and Jennifer Raff talked about it. And Mud okay. Fossils is basically there's a there's a YouTube channel called Mus- Mud Fossil University where there is a man who thinks that there are mud fossils, which we might know as rocks, 
And so he has identified. He just, just lost all patience. It's just this guy like tootling around like on Google Earth being like, here we find the like tail and like spinal column of a dragon. But it's actually like the like big low rocks. Atlas Mountains. No, it's the Atlas Mountains. Okay. Okay. So wow, big rocks. <laughs> big, big rocks. Real, real big rocks. So <laughs> that's that's not that. Uh, go listen to Sarah's show about that. But she does a great okay. job. Go listen to Archie Fantasies. <laughs> the earliest historically recorded dynasty in China is the Shang from 1600 to 1050 BCE. Then in 221 BCE, we see the start of the Chen dynasty from which China derives its name. Ah. Uh-huh. <laughs> ah. Okay, great. We're caught up. So don't worry. We'll save some of that for future episodes. We've yeah. got a whole future ahead of us. So let's have a brief introduction to the mausoleum's main occupant, and then we'll talk more about the site itself. This comes from National Geographic, and it came out in 2019, saying, quote, China already had a long history by the time its states were unified under its first emperor. Settlements in the Yellow and Yangtze River valleys had grown into an agricultural civilization. Between the 5th and 3rd centuries BCE, a time known as the Warring States period. You can probably figure out what was happening, but... They go on to say, at least seven kingdoms battled for supremacy in East Central China. The state of Chen, based in the Sichuan Plains, eventually won out in 221 BCE under the leadership of the ruthless King Zhang. The victorious monarch gave himself the title of Chen Shi Huangdi, first Chen emperor. Mm-hmm. The emperor divided the lands into 36 command areas, each supervised by a governor, a military commander, and an imperial inspector, all of whom reported to him. He relocated hundreds of thousands of influential families from their home provinces to the capital, Xianyang, where he could keep a close eye on them. I remember seeing a video about this at the Asian Art Museum during an exhibit. It's kind of an important period. Uh, yeah, no, I <laughs> I remember this now. <laughs> Good. Um, Weapons were confiscated and melted down. A new imperial currency was issued. Weights and measures were standardized. Even wagon axles were built according to a certain measure so they could fit within the ruts in China's roads. The emperor ordered Chinese writing made uniform such that all words with the same meaning in the country's varied languages would be represented by the same characters. This was what that exhibit was about. Oh, cool. Um, Shi Huangdi brutally suppressed dissent. Some accounts say that 460 scholars were rounded up and executed, and the texts they had used to criticize the government were confiscated or burned. Citizens of all ranks were encouraged to inform on one another. Those convicted of crimes were executed, mutilated, or put to hard labor. Um, Does this come from later histories or contemporary histories? Um, A lot of it comes from later histories, probably by necessity, because if you're writing about what's happening with a yeah. negative tone about the, well, yeah, the brutally I do, I, suppressed dissent. Yeah. I always wonder sort of like the motivation of historians. Yeah. Uh, well, we're going to talk about one historian in particular who's going to pop up a lot. And that's where a lot of this comes okay, from. Okay, Great. Here he comes. Hundreds of thousands of men served in Chen armies, mobilized to defend against nomads in the north and other tribes in the south. Hundreds of thousands more toiled to build palaces, canals, and roads, according to Han historian Sima Chan. There he is. 
They also built, quote, border defenses along the Yellow River, constructing 44 walled district cities overlooking the river and manning them with convict laborers. The whole line of defenses stretched over 10,000 li, which is more than 3,000 miles. That project, during which countless workers died, marked the beginning of the Great Wall. Yeah, so Shi Huangdi is often called the emperor who built the Great Wall, but it's it's more accurate to say he started building the okay. Great Wall because it took a long time and it was, as the name suggests, very big. I was like, great? Uh, Pretty great. Not surprisingly, the autocratic emperor... Uh, was the target of several assassination <laughs> attempts. Perhaps in response, goes with the name. <laughs> Perhaps in response, Shi Wangdi became obsessed with the idea of immortality. As Sima Chan records, his advisors counseled him that the herbs of immortality would not work until he could move about unobserved. Yeah, it, it doesn't follow logically, but this, these medicines won't work until no one can see yeah, you. Like, which almost sounds like a like a joke, like. Like, it's, like, telling you, like, it won't work. Like yep. Yeah, okay. Well, accordingly, he built walkways and passages connecting his palaces so that he could move about in the seeming invisibility. Plus, it helps the idea of this sort of all-powerful emperor if he could just pop up out of nowhere. Yeah. Huh. You plotting? No, sir. <laughs> so besides herbs of immortality, which may or may not have worked depending on one's visibility... Still confused about the physics of that. Shi Huangdi's counselors had another elixir of eternal life up their sleeves. Mercury. Or, in a different form, specifically the ore that mercury comes from, cinnabar, which is mercury sulfide. Mm -hmm. It sounds much more delicious than it is. <laughs> it's a lovely color, yeah. cinnabar. Yeah. But it's, it looks like, it, because of the cinna part, I keep thinking, like, oh, cinnamon. Is the cinna in cinnabar from China? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Throughout antiquity, cinnabar was the source of all mercury. There was a lot of this mineral in China, mm. particularly in the West. Okay. Shangxi alone contains almost a fifth of all the cinnabar reserves in the country, and there are very ancient mines in Shenyang County in the south of the province. So to extract mercury from cinnabar, you only have to heat it at high temperatures, which converts the sulfur to sulfur dioxide, and releases it as a gas, while the mercury is also released as a vapor that can then be condensed, which I'm sure smells great and is totally not harmful for anyone standing around clouds of vaporized mercury all yeah, the time. Yeah, you don't want a scentsy of that. No, you don't. You don't want to, like, steam spy yourself. In its pure form, mercury boils at 357 degrees Celsius. Would you like to tell me that in Fahrenheit? Did you hear me typing? I saw you highlight 357 degrees Celsius, and I assumed that that's what you were doing. Um, yeah, I just like did it off the top of my head. It's around 674.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm, quite hot. <laughs> so the refining process needs very high temperatures, say around six, 700 degrees Fahrenheit. But that was well within the capabilities of Chin-era kilns, which we know because some of those kilns have been found and excavated. Which in the scheme of things isn't that hot. It's not. And we talked uh, last time. Yeah, about, last week we no, talked about a regular bonfire can reach maybe 700 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. So you can throw your cinnabar in there. I mean, don't. It, but you could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One could. Um, during the Warring States period, before sort of the Qin Empire got started, mercury was a common ingredient of medicines being used to treat infected sores, scabies, ringworm, and ugh, yikes, as a sedative for mania and insomnia. 
So I uh, did a quick little search because when I read that it was a sedative for mania and insomnia, I was like, well, okay, what does mercury do to the brain? Shut it do, down. Because, yeah, it, yep, that's basically <laughs> what it does. Uh, yeah, symptoms of mercury poisoning can include things like extreme fatigue. Um, so it may have kind of followed that it was then used as a sedative because that was one of the effects. But then that progresses with fur- with further exposure to things like tremors and yeah. sort of loss of, yeah, it really um, eats away at your brain. I saw an it's episode very, very of Bill Nye, the science guy that talked about mercury poisoning. <gasps> it stuck oh, with boy. me this whole time. I bet. So because it is bright red, cinnabar was also used for art and decoration in China. Incidentally, the artificial form of cinnabar produced in the West since the Roman era became known as the pigment vermilion. Oh. oh. So it was like a local imitation of what like they, yeah. could, they could import for like a, a bajillion... Sisterses. Sisterses, yeah. I was like, <laughs> couldn't remember. What is Roman coin? I know. <laughs> Drachma? I, could, I was trying to think of, yeah, all I could think was Ducati. And I'm like, that's a type of motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 26 Ducati, please. <laughs> a bargain. One of the most important uses of mercury at this time has a particularly alchemical tinge. Gold and silver dissolve in mercury to form amalgams, and such mixtures were used for gilt plating. The amalgam was rubbed on and heated to evaporate the mercury, leaving behind a gleaming coat of precious metal. What? So you mix mercury and either gold or silver. Uh Uh-huh. The mercury dissolves the gold or silver. Oh. And then you can heat the coated thing, whatever you have coated. The mercury dissolves away, leaving... The thing coated in either gold or silver. So it's almost like a like a glaze. You're like glazing yeah. it in. Essentially, yes. Wow. Yep. I mean, not great because it releases mercury vapor. Oh, but... terrible. But wow. <laughs> yeah. A lot of this episode is going to be, wow, that's terrible. Wow. <laughs> Such I, mixtures. Wow. <laughs> like, I just like, I don't know. Where have like metals been all my life? Like these last two weeks, I'm just like getting my mind blown. Wow, this Ah, is so cool. (laughs) I'm glad I could be here for you for this. (laughs) Such mixtures also featured in alchemical elixirs. The Taoist concept of yin and yang, the two fundamental and complementary principles of life, encouraged an idea that cold, watery, so yang, mercury, and bright, fiery, yin, gold, might be blended in ideal proportions to sustain vitality. Oh, no. (laughs) No, bad. I mean, like, I from, see like, where the logic like, follows. And like from a like aesthetic perspective. Sure. Like I love that. From a knowing what that does to your brain cells perspective. Bad. Yeah, it's not great. So the first emperor was said to have consumed and, and not he's not the only one. Um, lots of sort of court officials and people of high rank and wealth. Uh, people who had access to, have, to, to these yes, substances. Exactly. Right. Uh, were said to have consumed wine and honey laden with cinnabar, thinking it would prolong his life again, obsessed with immortality and invisibility. And some have speculated that he might have hastened his death with these medicines. And so cinnabar is not quite as poisonous um, as mercury because it's it's in that ore form and it's sort of crystallized and it's not pure mercury. It's only when mercury is refined out of cinnabar that it becomes 
this incredibly potent neurotoxin. So exposure might have taken much longer in the non-refined form, but he still could have gotten really, really sick from constantly ingesting cinnabar. Yes. Did you find something on the Google? Uh, cinnabar, otherwise known mm-hmm. as mercury sulfide, is the single most toxic no- mineral known to man and woman. Yeah. So don't. A non-binary I mean, person. The problem with cinnabar is when it uh, when oxidized, it produces methyl and dimethyl dimethylmercury, two toxic component compounds that cause terminal damage to the nervous system. That's cinnabar is essentially non-toxic. Yeah. So in this its is- in its mineral form, it is largely inert. But if it gets heated, or if something happens to oxidize it, then it starts releasing those vapors of the uh, mercury. What'd you say? What? With a mercury, what and what? Ethyl and dimethyl something. Yeah, um, all the all the ethyls. Well, I was I looked this up because I was wondering if like consuming small amounts over a long period of time might result in like what is that called mithridatism, like where you develop a resistance to it, like something that is poisonous when oh, you consume in small amounts over a long period. And of immunity. Time. Yeah, like you, it's just less toxic to you. Like mm-hmm. you can, your body can tolerate The thing that it. Nero tried to do with poisons and then he tried to poison himself at the end of his life and it didn't work, so he had to fall on his sword. Allegedly. I was thinking specifically of Mithridates. Okay. After whom it's named. Right. That's all I have. Mercury is a major part of one of the big <laughs> mysteries surrounding the mausoleum, which, to clarify before we get going on this, has never been fully excavated. Which is wild! I mean, hence the mystery part. Wow. Yep. The emperor was given the throne at the age of only 13. Hmm. And he set about right away building his tomb, or rather telling people to build his tomb, which took 38 years to build and was completed about 212 BCE, well after his death. In the words of the great Chinese historian, here he is again, Sima Qian, in his book Records of the Grand Historian, he's very proud of himself Mm -hmm. there. He said, quote, he had over 700,000 men from all over the empire transported to the spot to work on the on the tomb. So why so many and why so long? Well, because it's really, really big and required both an astonishing amount of skilled craftsmanship and just manual labor. The workers included slaves, criminals and conquered enemy prisoners and DNA analysis of their bones found in pits on the site show they came from diverse backgrounds all over China. The construction project actually outlasted the emperor himself. He died at about the age of 50. Construction continued for another year or two after his death before his remains were finally placed inside and it was sealed. And incidentally, the mausoleum was not actually finished at this time. They were just like, well, he's dead. Guess we're done. I have a very quick question. Yes. You say that he got his, he received, he received his throne. He was like, he ascended the throne at 13. Yeah. This was before he was an emperor. He was just yes. king of, ruler of one of the warring he states. Was, and then yes, it he was, was a over. ruler of a particular, yes. And, and then he became a military leader. And eventually his armies were the winners of sort of the warring states um, battles. And then he consolidated most okay. of those states into his, what became okay. his empire. Yep. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify that it wasn't on a trajectory for no trajectory towards really good... consolidation. Like mm-hmm. when he at 13, it wasn't like he was a 13 year old being like, my dream is to. I mean, I haven't gonna... seen the vision boards. I can't be sure, <laughs> but I. But, but he so and he died at around 50. So that's mm-hmm. 37 years of 
rule of rule total but but a lot of that was rule over his individual right. state and then eventually all of china then conquest yes right, thanks for clarifying that for me sure thing the best known feature of the mausoleum complex is the terracotta warriors and we will get to them as for the complex itself a walled city 2.2 kilometers long encloses another walled city Mm. 1.3 kilometers long cities on cities on cities and within that is the massive earthen pyramid of the tomb itself the pyramid is 350 meters on a side in terms of its surface area two and a half times the footprint of egypt's great pyramid of giza so it's not as tall but it is still 20 percent large like a whole 20 percent larger by volume it's real big it's big Real big. real big. When the Chinese pyramid was completed, though, it was elaborately planted with trees and shrubs. So today you can walk on it and basically think you're walking up a slope in the middle of a this lush old growth forest. You wouldn't, mm. you know, it's different for the pyramids at Giza. You sort of, they're sort of unmistakably there, there on the landscape. Yeah, it's <laughs> unless you're looking for pre-sand Egypt. Oh my God. Which, which listeners to Deep Cuts... Uh, what was boy. that? Oh boy, what if was that? If you know what pre-Sand Egypt is or have found it or are from it, write in. The dirt podcast at gmail.com. We don't know. So Great. why are we banging on about the importance of Mercury? Because of this detail relayed by your favorite and mine, Sima Qian. Mercury was used to fashion the Hundred Rivers, the Yellow River, and the Yangtze River, and the seas in such a way that they flowed. So supposedly, the mausoleum contains a scale map of all of the first emperor's domain with all the bodies of water represented by pools of mercury. So does it? Oh, wow. We don't know. But the first detailed study of mercury levels in the mound were conducted in the early 1980s, because remember, the mausoleum has never been excavated. So we really don't know. Uh, when researchers from the Institute of Geophysical and Geochemical Exploration of the China Institute of Geoenvironment Monitoring sunk small boreholes into the soil over an area of 12,000 square meters in the center of the mound and extracted soil samples for analysis. From I don't the think grid- they, I don't, I don't really think that they, they did a good enough job of highlighting the um, geo aspect of mm. the organization. There, there's not enough geo in that title. <laughs> there could be more geo. Geomonitoring. <laughs> Geomonitoring, yeah. They Well, they sunk small geo boreholes <laughs> to extract soil samples for analysis. From the grid of geo borehole samples in the earlier geo study, one can construct a rough map of how the high levels of mercury are distributed. And so one of the researchers said, quote, there is no unusual amount of mercury in the northwest corner of the tomb, while the mercury level is highest in the northeast and second highest in the south. So if you really squint at this grid distribution and you overlay it on a map of the two great rivers of China, the Yellow River and the Yangtze, you can sort of squint and blur your vision and imagine that it matches as seen from the ancient Qin capital of Xianyang, close to modern Xi'an. So, eh, I mean, I, this sounds like a big old example of confirmation bias to me. Wow. But so, so like there are two in the grid. So remember, 12,000 square meters. They, they created a grid of these soil samples 
and analyzed them. And within that grid, they found concentrations of high levels of mercury. So that okay. is true. Right. Those clusters but how sort high is of, high? Well, is it like slightly higher not. or is it like definitely a pool of mercury? It's I don't think it is confirmed one way or the other. So I think like, there I mean it's like everyone's a, it's a debate thousand parts per million parts per yeah so it's like, you know it's definitely elevated okay levels of mercury certainly but whether or not it it confirms absolutely the presence of these flowing rivers and and seas of mercury that's never really been could it be made. could it be um partially owing to mercury levels in people that are buried is would there be enough mercury in people so if you're talking about sort of i doubt it the, okay but mercury could have leached out of because things were made with mercury and with yeah. cinnabar and so if there's enough stuff in the tomb that contained mercury yeah sure yeah so there, i mean there's no confirmation from any tests that have been done and again the mausoleum has not been excavated yeah. so there's no confirmation that this exists but Simachian records that the tomb was built with this sort of living map of yeah. of mercury. The mound has also been tested by measuring <laughs> a little pump, a little something yeah, that yeah. like kind of keeps it going. It's like those little like little kitty fountains. Little, yeah, like little yeah meditation it's, fountains. Yeah, just like that. Because otherwise, it would just all flow out and just be in the. Be at the yeah, lowest no, it's point supposedly, in the, I mean, the way that Sima Qian records it, it supposedly flowed. Flowed, yeah. So, <laughs> The mound has also been tested by measuring gravity anomalies what? and soil resistivity. One so moment. stuff rolling uphill. <laughs> this is actually the Winchester Mansion. <laughs> or the, the Winchester Mystery House. Not the, the Winchester no, Mansion. No, it's the, the mystery spot. But isn't it's it the, the Winchester mystery. mystery House? No, that's just ghosts. There's, oh. there's the mystery spot that's in like San, in like Santa Cruz or San Jose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's just the. You're right. It is just the mystery spot. There's I one. There's them. one here in West Virginia too. I got them confused. Um, anyway, these <laughs> tests seem to indicate that the tomb inside the mound may be mostly, if not entirely, intact rather than collapsed. So, gravity anomalies. What? Gravity anomalies just have to do with using um, ground penetrating radar mm -hmm. and looking at the uh, kind of printout that you get showing whether there may be cavities or um, structures underground. So gravity anomalies are simply it's a way of saying chambers or, you know, openings underground. Soil resistivity is based on the principle that different materials conduct electric current differently. And so some materials are more resistive, meaning that current doesn't travel as well through them. Like so ceramics. You can, exactly. Yes. So you can, <laughs> good job. So you can send electric current into, um, into a, into the ground and you can basically um, track that electric current based on, you know, it's a software program that does it and you can determine basically different components of the soil underneath you. So you can determine whether, for example, there is a big chunk of something that's very conductive, right? How so How similar or dissimilar is this to a metal detector? It's, it's only different in that um, when the metal detector sends out an electromagnetic field, any metal, I mean, it really, it only works with metal, 
hence metal detector, <laughs> any, any metal that's within range, the electrons of that material become energized and create an electromagnetic field of their own, which the metal detector then senses mm. and goes, and goes wheelie beep, beep, beep. Yep. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So instead of electromagnetic <laughs> field, resistivity has to do with how well a current is conducted. Okay. So you zap it. You zap it and see how well it zaps. And different materials, yeah, and different materials zap in different known ways. So when you get a readout from those zaps, you can say, oh, there's a strong likelihood that a big thing made out of copper is down here. That kind of idea. Hmm. Or a big thing made out of terracotta. Maybe. Which, Hmm. let's, so let's have an ad and then we get back. I'll tell you about it. Talk about a big thing made out of terracotta. I'll tell you about it. Yeah. Great. (laughs) It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. All right. Now that we're all Terra caught up. Oh my God. So, since the mausoleum itself has never been excavated, <laughs> uh, and also cannot overstate the fact that the mausoleum has never been ex- excavated. We, we don't, don't know. A- we don't actually know what's in the place where he's at. Right. So, where the emperor is buried, that's the mausoleum. Yeah. But what we're talking about is more broadly is this huge complex. Yeah. A necropolis. A yes. city of dead people very goth okay so <laughs> and so rather than speculating about what would be in it let's just talk about a part of the complex that has been partially excavated um which again huge so huge so big it's so big it's so big gosh it's so big so big um and so it's spectacular in its own right and that is the emperor's terracotta army which he keeps in his terracotta sleeveys oh my gosh it's a really good joke. It's a joke. I'll not that, hear anything against it. It's a joke that I told when I was like eight to like my gifted teacher. I was like, where does Napoleon keep his armies? She's like, I don't, I don't know. And I was like, of his sleeves. And she's like, God, Because he didn't have pockets. So precocious. And that's why he put his hand in his vest. Yeah. All right, let's move on. What a nerd. So a this nerds. is from a... <laughs> God. Why don't you go start a podcast, nerd? Uh, so this is from a Smithsonian article published in the Halcyon Bygone Days of January 2020. 
<laughs> a lifetime ago. Do you remember who you were then? Because I don't. So the, I'm sorry. Did I trigger an existential crisis? The, the mood went <laughs> plummeted. <laughs> so I was just kind of going for like a shared like, oh boy, wow. <laughs> nope. Okay. In 1974, farmers digging a well in China's Shangxi province stumbled upon fragments of a life-size clay figure crafted in the shape of a battle-ready soldier. Subsequent excavations revealed a stunning, brave and stunning, now iconic archaeological discovery, an army of terracotta warriors, each rendered with unique traits some 2,000 years ago. Archaeologists estimate that some 7,000 warriors, more than 2,000 of which have since been excavated, were in... So, like, not even half. I know, I know. Not even half. ...were interred alongside the emperor. Now, the state-run Xinhua News Agency has announced the discovery of an additional 200 soldiers, as well as a large number of weapons in the emperor's tomb. But not in the emperor's tomb. Not in the actual tomb, in the necropolis. God, the Smithsonian. Um, So (laughs) the finds were made over the course of the 10 year excavation of the of number one pit. I hope they have mugs that say that. Where's a big number one? Number one pit. Uh, The largest of three major pits containing the fascinating figures. A fourth pit discovered during early digs turned out to be empty, suggesting the burial project was abandoned before it could be finished. Yeah, because the emperor died and they're just like, well, let's just, let's just call it. He won't know. <laughs> uh, Shen Maosheng, the researcher who headed the excavation, tells Jinhua that most of the newly discovered warriors were sculpted into one of two positions, either clutching pole weapons with their right arms bent and fists partially clenched or carrying bows with their right arms hanging at ease. Thank you, Anna. I was demonstrating for you. The figures were arranged in different positions within the pit based on their military tasks. Details on their armor and clothing point to their rank. This individuality is one of the soldiers' more remarkable qualities. All figures found thus far boast distinct expressions, hairstyles, and physical features. Yeah, so of thousands of soldiers, there are details on each one that make them individual. Yeah, so they're not like um, molded. They're not just like... Uh, we'll get Mass to that. Produced. We'll get to, ah, but they are, and we'll ah. get to that. So, this is from another Smithsonian article published in 2009, just a few months One before. million years ago. 2020. <laughs> um, Chen Shi Huangdi decreed a mass production approach. Artisans turned out figures almost like cars on an assembly line. Custom cars. Clay, unlike bronze, lends itself to quick and cheap fabrication. Workers built bodies from big slab molds, fit the pieces together, fitting torsos to legs, and then customized them with heads, hats, shoes, mustaches, ears, and so on, made in smaller molds. Some of the figures appear so strikingly individual that they seem modeled on real people, though that is unlikely. So Hiromi Kinoshita says, These probably weren't portraits in the Western sense. Instead, they may have been aggregate portraits. Kinoshita says that the ceramicists, quote, could have been told that you need to represent all the different types of people who come from different regions of China, um, end quote, which would have been like pretty savvy and like sort of. a Yeah, especially since this was an emperor who united multiple yeah. states over a huge area because we've stated before, but worth stating again, China, very big. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just that's it. <laughs> 
Um, for more on the reconstruction of the process used to make the soldiers, or at least a couple of different hypotheses, because there are some differences of opinion, we turn to the Met. And an article written in conjunction with an exhibit of the Terracotta Warriors titled Age of Empires. Yep. Is that a game? It's like a yep. cell phone game. Cell phone yep. game. Who am I? Cell phone game. <laughs> Is that your mom? <laughs> when a viewer first steps into the galleries of Age of Empires, Chinese art in the Jin and Han dynasties, he or she comes face to face with four life-size ceramic warrior figures with distinctive postures. Beyond the statues, one can see the silhouettes of many more armored warrior figures receding into a dark background, inviting the viewer to picture an army of thousands of sculptures of this kind. Some warrior figures even appear to be headless, simulating what one might have found in the army pits of the first Chen Emperor. I wasn't clear about whether they meant these weren't finished or they they had or, been beheaded or like yeah and is, like that's that was being depicted i wasn't sure yeah could be either could be maybe they meant it to be either mm. Mm. although there are elaborate descriptions of how the warriors headdresses and clothes suggest their rank or positions discussions of the actual making process and the materials used are more limited we learn, for example, that a peaked cap signifies a civil official of the eighth or higher rank, and that a cap with a flat rectangular front split into two folded peaks is usually worn by a general. But when it comes to understanding how the Chen warriors' figures were made, opinions vary. The account offered by Wu Hung, a professor at the University of Chicago, is perhaps the most widely accepted. In his book on Chinese sculpture, Hung explains that the statue was produced by making the head, hands, and torso separately, then assembling them. While the head and hands were fashioned with molds, the torso was modeled by hand. After the rudimentary form of each part of the body was modeled or molded with a coarse and sandy clay and had dried slightly, layers of finer clay were applied so the craftsmen could carve the details of hair, beards, eyes, mouths and chins, muscles and tendons, collars, pleats, belts and belt hooks, leg bindings, armor plates, and so forth. <laughs> Another researcher... Zhizhen uh, Jason Sun argues that the heads, torsos, and limbs of the warriors were all cast as separate modules, then joined together with clay. Clay was then also applied to the surface to allow individualization and refinement before being painted to evoke the appearance of skin, hair, clothes, and arms. I th I think oh weapons they mean <laughs> weapons and not like. Upper limbs, but I'm not like, positive. I don't know. Speci specifying. You got to create arms. the appearance of arms. Okay. Uh, Zhang Wenli, a researcher at the Qin Shi Huangdi Mausoleum Site Museum in Xi'an, offers a third explanation. According to him, the legs and lower part of the warrior body were modeled from a solid lump of clay. Then, the upper torso was added using a coiling technique, in which clay is rolled into a long strip and layered one coil on top of another. Can I make that snack? I'm going to make a snack. Uh, while the other two scholars propose a three-body part assembly method, Zhang argues that the arms, hands, ears, and heads were made separately from different molds, and that and even that sometimes two molds were used for the heads. Okay. Like front the two, and back. Yeah, yeah. I was like, <laughs> the two parts of the head and the ears were then joined and finished off by hand, and the whole figure was fitted together and fired in a kiln. 
To what degree the statues were modeled or molded appears to be one of the main points of contention, yet the three leading scholars in the field of ancient Chinese sculptures mentioned above all agree that the warrior figures were constructed by joining body parts together before they were fired. An article that documents a reconstruction project carried out by archaeologists and conservators in Xi'an back in 1992 draws a conclusion that is the opposite of the mainstream propositions listed above. Instead of supporting the theory that the statues were constructed section by section, the researchers in Xi'an proclaim that the whole warrior body was made in one piece and the and only the head could be lifted off. They arrived at this conclusion by reconstructing the warrior figures of the Chen dynasty from preparation of the clay to the final firing stage. This reconstruction process took about a year to complete, and it was very important to keep the moisture and temperature of the inside and the outside of the statue as even as possible throughout the whole process. Unfortunately, this finding could not be published in mainland China at the time due to government restructuring, but the researchers managed to publish it in a Taiwanese publication in 1994. Yeah, so there really are a lot of differences of opinion. And I have a link that we'll put in the show notes to a documentary um, that, that talks about a lot of this kind of modular construction. And they do a lot of experimental stuff to attempt to show how these pieces might have been put together. Um, and that, that also comes up uh, in the weapons that we're going to also talk about. The arms. The arms. Mm-hmm. So, oh dear listener, we don't really have any concrete or clay answers clay. for you. Uh, but however the soldiers were constructed, they were made on a truly stupendous scale. There was a lot of them. The full army hasn't even been fully excavated. So who even knows what else is there? Yeah. And it wasn't just soldiers that were present. There were also actors and uh, just sort of horses. court people and, and horses depicted. Sorry that I... You're so, you're so sleepy. He's yawned in here with horses. <laughs> horses. I saw I saw one. You saw a horsey? No, I mean, I've, I, have, I have seen a literal horse, a flesh horse. I saw it yesterday. But there's a terracotta horse from the ter. I've seen one of those. Okay, just well, want to thank you for that. I have seen thank both. You. Great. I'm a horse guy. Remember, <laughs> you're a horse guy now. So, another aspect of the terracotta army that points to all the, let's say, forceful organization that was happening under the Qin regime is the weapons carried by the clay warriors. They were the real deal, and it looks like they, like the warriors, were mass produced. So this is from um, an article from the WAPO, Washington Post, in 2012. And it's really interesting to note here. Um, so when I say they were the real deal, I mean that the emperor had weapons made for his terracotta soldiers in the exact same way that weapons would have been made for real soldiers who were using them. So, quote, what has been a puzzle for scientists is how so many weapons could have been made so skillfully, so uniformly, and so quickly. Qin reigned as emperor for only 11 years. Construction of his mausoleum complex is thought to have started long before his death. They now have a likely answer. A new study of 40,000 bronze arrowheads suggests they were produced in self-sufficient autonomous workshops that produced finished items rather than parts that fed into an assembly line of sorts which suggests that something akin to the just-in-time production methods used in industry today may have had a trial run more than two millenniums ago. Okay, I object to that from the Washington Post. What do you mean by a trial run? I think you actually mean a thing that was invented here in China way before it was used in the West. 
What Come is on. just in time? Like, um, slightly different than made to order. So it's like based on an estimation of how many uh, units of something are needed. Just-in-time manufacturing, also known as just-in-time reduction or the Toyota production system, is a methodology aimed primarily at reducing times within the production system as well as at response times from suppliers and to customers. What does that mean? I don't I think get it just, business. So <laughs> let's. I think it just means that it's oh, mass-produced it's a journey but in to the zero way waste kind of and on cost demand. efficiency. Oh, great! Cool. It's not just another term in the lean manufacturing dictionary. These are all definitions that give no definition whatsoever. But my understanding is that it is a way of mass producing that does not overproduce. It basically addresses demand, but not much more than that. Anyway, if you do business, write in. The Dirt Podcast at <laughs> gmail.com. University College London archaeologist Marcos Martinon Torres is the lead author on a study published in 2012 in the Journal of Archaeological Method and Theory. Wow. Jammed. He said, quote, our initial assumption was that all of these items were mass produced in large production chains with the various parts produced in specialized units before they were assembled together. That's how most cars are made. Fordism, or flow line production. However, our data strongly suggests that production was arranged in much smaller units, several working in parallel, each of them sufficiently autonomous and versatile to produce finished items. So really, if we had just read one more paragraph, we would have learned what just-in-time production methods are. But I read all those definitions that didn't mean anything. Mm. The less you know... <laughs> The scientists came to their conclusion through metallurgical analysis of the weapons and a statistical analysis of where they were found. First, they studied some of the 37,348 arrowheads found in 680 locations using a portable X-ray fluorescence spectrometer, a handheld tool that determines an object's precise chemical content. Can you fathom the scale of the monotony of that task? Yes. Oh, just. Yep. Oh, dink, 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 dink. Chunk. Dink, 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 dink. Chunk. Well, only 35,000 more left. It's been a good two weeks here. (laughs) Oh, my God. Although the polished arrowheads seem identical to the human eye, X-ray fluorescence revealed that discrete batches of the copper tin alloys bore unique chemical signatures. Each batch bore its own mix of copper, tin, and lead. Different batches were found throughout the site, suggesting that multiple workshops were operating at the same time. So not only were multiple workshops operating, but they were using different recipes. Slightly. Then the researchers positioned each artifact and warrior on a digital map based on the detailed records created in the 1970s and 80s by the Chinese archaeologists who first excavated the site. An illuminating picture emerged. Hmm. Each quiver seemed to have been produced and assembled by a single workshop. The arrowheads were probably made in batches, tied with linen to bamboo shafts, finished with feathers, bundled into 100 arrow quivers of leather and hemp, and placed with terracotta archers armed with crossbows. Um, We don't have the whole crossbows. The organic material, the wood, hasn't survived the centuries, but we found triggers because those were sort of metal plates that were also mass-produced. And it shows that the crossbows could have been very quickly made and assembled. 
The archaeologists had expected that the quiver's components would have been produced at a variety of locations and then assembled later. But if that were the case, the arrowheads found together shouldn't bear the same chemical signature. They should be all mixed up, but they're not. Archaeologists believe that the tomb outfitting teams were composed of artisanal groups, each of which worked under a master craftsman with a foreman overseeing quality control. They have identified the seals or signatures of at least 87 foremen on warriors' backs, indicating a form of personal accountability for the quality of each statue. So inspected by number 87, that kind of thing, the kind of thing that you find in the, on the sticker in the pocket of your pants. Mm-hmm. And this, this tracks with all of the, you know, in the way that we described up at the top of the episode of how there were these regional governors and sort of inspectors and all of those reported to other bureaucrats and then the sort of top mm-hmm. bureaucrats reported to the emperor. This hierarchical system of sort of systemized reporting and accountability tracks with how the empire was being organized at the time. Yeah, that's very fascinating that this is not dissimilar from other empires with which I'm familiar and of like that part of sort of centralized power is like a, a, a like food chain, like a a bureaucratic food chain. Huh? (laughs) You said, you said feud chain, which also works. (laughs) (laughs) Same, same. (laughs) Feud chain. (laughs) Yep. Uh, that was during that was during the Warring States period. That's just a series of feud chains. Robert Mrauchik, director of the International Center for East Asian Archaeology, although he may have retired this past year, and cultural history at Boston him. University, <laughs> yeah, said the weapons production system for the tomb probably mirrored how the real Qin army sourced its weapons and was probably a factor in its battlefield success. He said, quote, the Qin had a fantastically powerful military by ensuring a standardization of weaponry and also the ability to quickly replace and repair broken pieces on the battlefield. It makes perfect sense to have a cellular production model. If you're 200 miles from home and need more crossbow locks or triggers or arrowheads, you have teams that can produce things, end quote. So, yeah, basically they had um, like NASCAR pit crews that traveled with the armies that were, you know, they set up shop and they could produce the things that the soldiers needed. The main historical record that archaeologists rely on for clues to the tomb's construction is the first century BCE account by Dima Qian, who wrote that 700,000 people labored to build Qin's mausoleum complex. Now they were all brought Slaves, to the spot. Is that mm-hmm. quote that we read ahead of? Okay. Yeah. Slaves, indentured servants, prisoners of war, foremen, masters, artisans, All were conscripted into a strict hierarchical system with brutal work conditions. Skeletons in iron shackles unearthed at the site back up this account. Martin on Torres sums it up by saying, quote, This was a society ruled by a ruthless autocrat. The mausoleum is a celebration of that super ostentatious, centralized personality through the sheer investment of manpower and resources. We can look at the mausoleum and say, wow, look how powerful that emperor was. But we can also try to reconstruct the hundreds of thousands of anonymous laborers who made it possible. In that sense, we're hopefully giving them a little bit of credit for what they're worth. And this is why we love archaeology. Yes, snaps. snaps for that. Give the regular people their voice. And so before we have a quick ad break, I want to touch on one more cool science thing from the abstract of an article published in the journal Nature in April 2019. And this is just sort of one last kind of sciencey part of how... Because I'm also a metal guy now. 
Yeah. Oh, you're a metal horse guy. I'm a metal horse, horse, metal horse metal guy. Yep. Mm. Nay. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, we'll oh. workshop that. No. Okay. No, it's just like another <laughs> cool science-y analysis thing that I like. So here's the title. It's really a spoiler. Surface chromium on terracotta army bronze weapons is neither an ancient anti-rust treatment nor the reason for their good preservation. Discuss. <laughs> Like, like do the kids get the Linda Richmond SNL callback? <laughs> Not necessarily in that voice. There it's wasn't... neither an anti-rust treatment nor the reason for good preservation. Discuss. Is that, That's better. Is that Linda Richmond? That's good. Thank you. I'm not going to read this whole abstract in that voice. For 40 years. For 40 years. <laughs> All of my New York relatives. The only accent I think we can both do. Hey. Go on. For 40 years. There has been a widely held belief that over 2,000 years ago, the Chinese Qin developed an ancient chromate conversion coating technology, CCC, to prevent metal corrosion. This belief was based on the detection of chromium traces on the surface of bronze weapons buried with the Chinese terracotta army and the same weapons very good preservation. We analyzed weapons, lacquer, and soils from the site and conducted experimental replications of CCC and accelerated aging. Our results show that surface chromium presence is correlated with artifact typology and uncorrelated with bronze preservation. Furthermore, we show that the lacquer used to cover warriors and certain parts of weapons is rich in chromium, and we, and we demonstrate that chromium on the metals is contamination from nearby lacquer after burial. So basically, the chromium that's present on the bronze weapons isn't there to prevent rust. It's there mostly by accident because of a process that was used to lacquer up those soldiers to make their armor nice and shiny. So... Hmm. The the fact that the bronze weapons preserved so well is actually more likely to do with the fact that the soil there doesn't have uh, a, a low pH. It has an alkaline pH. So it's not acidic. So that soil didn't sort of eat away at the metal as much as it might have. So science. It's neat. That's cool. All right. Yeah. Let's have another ad. And then I'm mm -hmm. going to tell I'm going <laughs> to tell some more recent tales about the terracotta warriors. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. Okay, so... To wrap up our exploration of the mausoleum of Zhen Shi Wang, who we didn't even get to see, 
but that's fine because there's so much else to see. It's like waiting for Godot. Waiting for Is that a spoiler? I yeah. I can't it cannot possibly be a spoiler. For waiting for Godot? Like he doesn't show I'm up. I'm gonna put that in the show notes. Spoilers for waiting for Godot. <laughs> Warning, Beckett spoilers. Um so did Beckett write waiting for Godot? <laughs> Are you having another like confusing oh, no. outcast with Snoop Dogg? I am still so embarrassed about you that. You should be. Hey, ya is by Outcast. <laughs> yeah, duh. I, I'm sorry, Outcast. You should apologize to Andre 3000 and Big Boy. So, uh, here's an example of what happens when Anna falls down a click hole and ends up seven articles away from the original one. So, it's by Samuel Beckett. <laughs> We can continue now. So, um, in this case, okay, before no, before that, I'm going to tell you about my experience with the Terracotta Warriors. Um, Speci- specifically, one lonely one. No, no, I had, I had a, I had an experience with two different Terracotta Warriors. Okay. Um, so the Terracotta Warriors came to the the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco, and it was a very huge deal because um, they they didn't let them out often and as we'll learn in the story that i'll share after this um they have good reason not to (laughs) and to to let them let them loose um and so when so i went and saw them and of course i cried i don't i don't cry at art that much but i keep talking about the times that i have um specifically reliefs and also terror because it was so beautiful they're just so yeah they're so beautiful like it's just like unreal like you can like watch you know i had like seen photos of them i had like watched documentaries i learned about them like all that stuff but it doesn't compare to like seeing a like person made out of terracotta in front of you and then being like surrounded by like a bunch of his colleagues and a horse his colleagues. it's just like his work friends it's just really it's just it's it's just like astounding it's like very awesome like it's just like very striking but yes less awesome was um a marketing campaign that the that the asian <laughs> art museum did about this that i shared with anna before this episode where um there, so there is a. I think I may, I'll maybe I'll put this YouTube clip up in We're our show notes. We're gonna need to do that. So yep. um, this is from um, January twenty second, twenty thirteen. Um, so this is about a month before the exhibit opened. Um, so the title is "Lost Warrior: Asian Art Museum's Director Makes Personal Plea." And so in it, you've got um, Jay Shu, who's a very nice man, and he's the director of the Asian Art Museum. And he's he and makes he's this like playing along like, he, like a he's good a real sport. champ. He's such a champ. He got put up to this by his marketing people. And he's making this heartfelt plea because they lost one. So like on the It wasn't that they lost one, it's one of them wandered off. Well, so like it's it's like the idea is like on the way from China to San Francisco, he got lost. And we need your help finding him. And so the, the description for this is one of our terracotta warriors is lost in the Bay Area. We don't know how, we don't know where, but he's out there and we need your help. Last seen traveling with a small army from China to San Francisco. He's 2,112 years old, five feet, five inches tall, mud colored, and doesn't speak English. 
Help us find him in time for his big debut in China's Terracotta Warriors at the Asian Art Museum on February 22nd. And so as Anna learned, and as you will learn by watching this video, they got a guy, <laughs> they got an actor who was like, and I, I think I, I encountered him once because I started in working. In costume or no? <laughs> yeah, I don't know who the actor was. Like, unfortunately, um, it's so... I was I was volunteering there when the museum was wrapping up and I think he like popped in. He like came by. But they hired an actor who they put in a like mud colored suit. So he's like dressed like he a, looks he's dressed like the terracotta, a terracotta warrior. He's got this like bald cap like thing with like clay sculpted hair. Like clay hair, a little top knot and they have like clay makeup on him he's got great cheekbones they did a great job with his make excellent contouring on his makeup and yeah. he just looks kind of scared and so what they did was they made kinda, they sorry, made this they made this actor like hang out like around san francisco as part of like a viral marketing thing and and they did pictures too so it was like kind of the travelocity roaming gnome kind of thing where it's like oh he's but, an sfo with his little suitcase but so whereas the travelocity gnome the people at travelocity took the photos in the case of the lost warrior they put it up to like the photo taking public to do it it's a scavenger hunt so Find they it. did like a so they had one where he was just like standing at like the like I don't know what air, like the EVA airlines or something like like booth do, do, do. Um, like like just like standing at the like ticketing desk like holding his suitcase like with his little roller board they had him like at Fisherman's Wharf wandering around and they um, they just like sent him everywhere and so it was like you know God bless this actor um, mm -hmm. who like wasn't allowed to speak and he just like went around looking confused. And they put up like lost posters. It was very, it was, it was cute, but it was weird and it was very unsettling. And so it was kind of like the like inverse of the uncanny valley where like the canny hill, can, it was a very canny hill where it's like, <laughs> that is a human man, but he looks so much like a terracotta warrior that I don't know what to do with this. Um, but they did find him and he showed up. And all you know, as well like, did did poses, but it was a it's just very silly, and they won a bunch of awards for it, like for like from like, I thought it was like, neat, you know, marketing monthly or whatever. I don't know who who the award granting bodies yeah, are, the marketing Oscars. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was my experience with the Terracotta Warriors. So this this I mean, hats off to that wig wig caps off to that actor. Um, certainly i hope and this i hope he i hope he gets work because he did a great I job i hope he does too i hope yeah. he gets to say words uh, i hope no. he does too so but let's return <laughs> for our one last story from national geographic that combines the intrigue of art crime with the charm of our beloved philadelphia Ah, oh, philly <laughs> here's the headline what you need to know about the terracotta warrior stolen thumb on December 21st, 2017, Delaware resident Michael Rohana donned a green sweater and a Phillies hat to attend a pre-Christmas party at the Franklin Institute of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, 
Around 9.15 that evening, surveillance footage allegedly shows Rohana and some friends sneaking into a closed exhibition. The exhibit, on loan from China since September 30th, 2017, contains 10 of the famous terracotta warriors along with coins, gold pieces, jade, and weapons from the excavation site. Shortly after entering the exhibit, Rohana's friends left, leaving the 24-year-old alone with the frozen warriors. In the footage, Rohana views the exhibit using the glow from his smartphone flashlight. He appears to embrace one of the soldiers called Cavalry Man and takes a selfie with it. Then Rohana puts his hand into the left hand of the figure. He allegedly breaks something off and stashes the terracotta memento in his pocket. Thumb and toe, he leaves the scene. Allegedly. There was just like a lot of allegedly until yeah. that part. <laughs> He definitely, right, yeah. He, allegedly, he left. Could still be there. Museum staff didn't realize the statue was missing an appendage until January 8th. And they traced the alleged vandalism back to Rohana five days later. Authorities quickly showed up at his house where he lived with his parents, and Rohana quickly and reportedly admitted that he had kept the disembodied thumb in a desk drawer in his bedroom. <sighs> the next. Subheading, thumb theft. (laughs) On January 13th, Rohana was arrested and charged with theft and concealment of a major artwork, as well as interstate transportation of stolen goods. After surrendering his passport, he was released on bail on February 16th. Just what a colossally dumb decision. I know. The Shanji Cultural Heritage Promotion Center, who loaned the statues out to the Franklin Institute, strongly condemned the museum for being careless. The center also said it was going to send the two send two experts to assess the damage and repair the statue with the recovered thumb. There would be a claim for compensation, it added. Fair enough. Since the statues were discovered more than 40 years ago, the center has organized more than 260 overseas exhibits. But this is the first time a situation of this gravity has come to light. An official told the Communist Party-affiliated Beijing Youth Daily, quote, We call on the American side to severely punish the person who committed this destruction and theft of mankind's cultural heritage, end quote. The Franklin Institute said in a statement that its external security contractor did not follow standard closing protocol the night of the party, and the museum has reviewed its security measures and procedures to prevent future situations like this. Yep. So there's that. That happens. Man, like people trying to make Philly look bad. And it was like this, like this. But he was from Delaware. This dill from Delaware. Like just like (laughs) cannot. (laughs) Come on. Mikey, no. So there's that. I do. I did like. I I, I do. You like that he I, hugged him. I kind of like that he was like sort of looking at it with My like bro. the flashlight and then being like, bro, and like having a moment. But then he ruined um, it. But then he, he ruined, ruined the moment. Yeah, he really did. Yeah. So. um We hope that this episode has been a fun teaser for future explorations of the history and archaeology of China and like more of Asia in general. Uh, Because when, as we said, when we did our African Empire series, it's really, really, really big and really old. And there are enough stories there to last us a very long time. So special plea, if you do research in China in East Asia, 
in any part of Asia, um, if like any of the anywhere that you um, see as like underrepresented on our on our show, especially if it's like a a lot of it comes down to an access to English language sources. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you um, have those language skills and like that research knowledge, we would love to talk to you. If you know would. people who please. would want to be guest experts, please Send reach out way. to us. We would love to talk to them. We want to learn more and we want to share more. Um, and we and want to do it in a way that's not just us telling you things we've read. So, yeah, because otherwise we could do a podcast about metal detectors. <laughs> <laughs> I still think we should do a special occasional release of wiki huh where <laughs> I know, you and i, I just kind of find stuff on wikipedia and go huh. so instead yeah instead of just me sending you like scary images in the dead of night i really don't want to wake up to any more moray eels please <laughs> that was They're a, fine once that i'm was, awake um, what was that that was called like the enormous moray eel or something it was something like bigger than giant but it's just that's a moray oh, Here's a joke. Uh huh. What did Cicero say when he walked into the Japanese restaurant? What did Cicero say, Amber? Oh, mores. Oh, tempura. <laughs> <laughs> it's only the second time we've made that joke on this show. I love it. Still good. It's so dumb. It's How often do we talk good. about more eels? Apparently twice. More than I thought we would. <laughs> Thank you, listener. No, wait, come back, everyone. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, as always, for listening, and we will be back in your ears soon with more episodes. But more if you can't go without it, more episodes. <laughs> that was a reach. I'm sorry. <laughs> but if you can't go without us for that long, it's becoming less likely. Hit up thedirtpod.com for our full back catalog, plus merch and the button that lets you sponsor an episode and more. Ray. Hey. And if you still can't get enough, you can also find us on social media where we post archaeology stories, images related to recent episodes, like the the fish up Kalu. Guys, yep. a champ. Ugh. I want to turn that into a shirt. Would that be fun if I drew a fish up Kalu and then just said wisdom? <laughs> no, don't do that. Okay. Pet pictures. We got those. Put those up sometimes. Sometimes I'm on social media and then I put up photos of my dog. Uh, bad jokes not here not nope. us and what? all kinds of other stuff like good jokes um, and you can find us on Facebook we're the Dirt Podcast on Twitter we're at Dirt Podcast and on the gram we are at the Dirt Pod if you want to throw your support behind us you can do so by leaving us some reviews and stars preferably in increments of five on apple podcasts and you can also join the dirtbag family we're growing um and get and get access to bonus content at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast thanks everybody thank you so much goodbye goodbye This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.